0: Where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous
2: US China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ian
0: Kist. Hi, I'm Joe Saul from the Stacking Benjamin Show. You're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to Current Events Thursday. This is a new type of episode here on Earn and Invest on the last Thursday of every month where we discuss breaking or maybe even broken financial news with both an expert as well as a community member. Community members have volunteered to add the perspective of the common man or woman behind the podcast player. But of course, we know that Earn and Invest listeners are anything but common. Today, we are joined by Joe Salcihai, who is the creator and co-host of the Stagging Benjamins podcast, also known as The Greatest Money Show on Earth. He is also the author of Stacked, Your Super Serious Guide to Modern Money Management. From our community, we have Ian Kist, who lives with his wife and two kids in Rochester, New York. He currently is working as an athletic trainer, and he is well on his way to coast financial independence. Ian and Joe, welcome to Earn and Invest. Today, we're going to discuss two recent articles. Article 1 comes from Anders Bylin from The Motley Fool and is entitled, If you invested $1,000 in Bitcoin five years ago, this is how much you have now. Anders writes, Index investing is a great approach, but you can do even better with specific stocks or cryptocurrencies from time to time. Let's say you invested $1,000 in an index fund tracking the S&P 500 and reinvested dividends into more shares over time. You would have doubled your money by now. That's an average annual return of 15%. But what if you picked up $1,000 of Bitcoin five years ago? The largest cryptocurrency was in the middle of another crypto winter back then, hampered by hacking scandals and regulatory crackdowns with no support from large banks and other financial institutions. As it turns out, that was a solid buying window for investors looking to commit their funds over a five-year span. $1,000 in Bitcoin on January 15th, 2019 is worth $11,540 exactly five years later. That's a difference between $2,000 in the S&P 500 and $11,540 in Bitcoin. Joe, let's start with you. We are still talking about Crypto. Should we be?
0: Well, certainly we should with all the, the crypto headlines and the things going on in crypto with the ETFs coming on board, another big event coming in April for, for Bitcoin. But that's not, that is not at all. Uh, what makes me groan about this piece that you just read, doc, what makes me groan is for apologies to, to, to non-sports fans If the Dallas Cowboys had played as well as they usually do, they would have won their playoff (laughs) game, right? If we would have gone back five years in Monday morning quarterback, all the crap that we didn't do, well, certainly we could have done better. And it just, it drives me crazy when I see people go and, and, and you read it once, but I'll read it again. Index investing is a great approach, but you can do even (laughs) better with specific stops or cryptocurrencies. Wait for it. From time to time, somebody alert to pre- this is a ama- mate from time to time. I could do better non-indexing. That's amazing. Ian, speak to this a little bit,
1: because Joe brings up a valid point, right? This idea that when we Monday morning quarterback, everyone gets it right. But I've also seen studies that show that like between 2015 and 2022, like three quarters of people involved in crypto lost money. So first and foremost, Ian, did you get on the crypto bonanza? And if so, how did you do?
2: No, I did not get on the crypto hype train. And I think I'm still a little hesitant to join. You know, I think there's, there's a little bit more volatility in it than, than I'm comfortable with. And I think ultimately it goes back to, to what your, your goals are long term. You know, is your, is, is this some fun money that, that potentially you're looking to ride that wave? And, and if it goes to zero, you know, it, it really doesn't, doesn't affect you. Um, in the stage of life I'm in right now, we're looking for, for you know, 20, 30 years of, of stable returns. And, um you know, I just feel a lot more comfortable with the S&P index and I guess the, the boringness that comes with it.
1: Tell me, wasn't there any FOMO? Because I am pretty FOMO resisted, but there was a moment where I personally was feeling it. So Ian, any FOMO or you're like, you are rock solid, I'm index investing, I'm not doing it.
2: Sure, there's always there's always that fear of missing out that you're missing that that bottom, but I mean I I think ultimately how do you, how do you even know at this point? You know, sure, I I had FOMO 20 years ago when it was at uh, record lows and and that, you know, what what was it? The the first bitcoins were were sold to buy a pizza, you know, and and I would have loved to be in it then. But, you know, if if we quarterback, you know, to to steal Joe's analogy there, if, if we Monday morning quarterback it, you know, I wish when I was five years old that uh, that I would have been getting into to the stock market and and or or in two thousand you know seven eight I I bought you know real estate when you know I was I was still in high school you know so if we look at it that way of course you you feel like you missed out.
1: Joe, I know that you definitely took small amounts of money and put them in crypto. You and I have talked about this, right? You feel like that's actually the time to play around with it, understand it. We're not talking about huge amounts of money, uh, but it behooves us to understand what it is. And that brings up an important question, because I know for a long time I was like, I'm not putting any money in crypto because I just don't understand it. I understand the technology, but I don't understand why it could or couldn't go up. And I didn't feel like there were any fundamentals there that I could follow and that would lead me to making the right decision. So I guess the big question is, should we invest in things that we don't fully understand?
0: I think we can invest in things that we don't understand. Or or, uh, let me back off that a little bit. I think speculating in some things that you don't understand, as long as you use that word, I'm speculating. And I like the small amounts of money, you know, to your point, I put $1,200 into Ethereum. Like that was that was the, w- what I did, and and I found, by the way, the emotional roller coaster with in the big scheme of things for a for a fifty five year old guy, the emotional roller coaster I was on with twelve hundred bucks was incredible. <laughs> just just you know the huge ups and downs that you saw, and and it's important I I think in two ways trying to understand once you're in it what the underlying value is. I like doing that ahead of time but if I'm speculating I'm okay with learning even more once I'm in it. By the way, I once you're in it, you're even more likely to study what it is because it's intensely personal to you then, but then also studying yourself and how you react to that up and those ups and downs. I'm I I'm you know, I'm, I'm realizing more and more what a conservative investor I am and how much that that really pushes my hot button to be on that much of a roller coaster for, for, for me personally, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to crypto, what I don't understand is I understand the use case. I get that. I still don't, to your point, doc, I don't understand it as an investment. Like, is this thing meant to buy pizzas like Ian was talking about? And, you know, somebody famously did. Or or, or is this an investment? And if it's an investment, what is the mechanism that makes this actually rise in value? Like with a stock, I know that a company has to serve a customer. And if they do a good job and they keep the books well, and they have a difference between the money coming in and the money coming out, they keep their debt low, that stock's going to go up in value, right? I get that. I do not understand at all fundamentally what makes Bitcoin go up. And sure, if I would have invested in it five years ago, I you know, cha-ching, I could have done great. But what's the mechanism that told me five years ago this might be a good opportunity? Because in the stock market, and even in the real estate market, you know, when Ian was talking about 2007, 2008, I know that the time of greatest uncertainty is often the best opportunity for me to get in. Actually, the lowest point of risk, 2007, 2008, 2001, 2002 for the stock market you know that there've been a few of those i don't know what that is with bitcoin when it goes down is it going to keep going down is it is it going to go back up turns out it went back up so according to this piece i should have invested because it went back up but but, but i don't i don't know why and that, that that really bothers me i spoke with one more thing i spoke with a guy named kevin rose who's the host of the modern finance podcast kevin had a great take on this whole uh topic which was the time to get into things, if you want to make big, big, big money is when it's the wild West, when the, when to my point, I don't, I don't know what the hell makes it go up. It just goes up. Right. But to put little money in that you can afford to lose, that's when the chance of highest gain happens. Once the certainty comes, if certainty ever comes to crypto, the chance of huge gains is going to be gone because you don't get certainty and huge gains in the same sentence.
1: Yeah, this reminds me, Joe, of something we talked about uh, yesterday in recording for the Stag and Benjamins podcast, this idea of asymmetric risk. It's not asymmetric if you put all your life savings into crypto. But if you put $1,000 into crypto, it's asymmetrical because the possible upside could be exponential, whereas the downside is the $1,000. Yeah. Do
0: you
2: guys have a, a different uh, strategy when investing in the cryptocurrencies versus the underlying technology when you talk about the blockchain or, or ETFs that involve that? You know,
1: let me jump in here for a moment. I was about to ask you this question, Ian, but it's really interesting because even Joe was saying, look, there's a, there's a use case for using crypto to do things like buy pizza. But guess what? I already buy pizza. And you know the way I do it? A lot of times I do it nowadays with Venmo. Or with Zelle. And guess what? I'm not worried about the value of what I have in Venmo or Zelle going up to a million or down to zero on any given day. So, like I see it, Ian, is that the use case for the technology for blockchain makes a lot of sense. The use case for the things like the ETFs, I don't even understand that because what's great about crypto, if you're at all interested in crypto, is exponential gain. And once you make it an ETF, you pretty much marginalize any possibility of exponential gain. So I get why they're making ETFs out of it. But what we're really looking at is we're really looking at the indexification of crypto to the point where the correlation factor with Regular index funds is so similar that we're really not diversified anymore. I don't know, Joe. What's your take?
0: Well, you know, when it comes to strategy around this, my answer Ian, is that I don't know. I I, <laughs> I wish I knew what the strategy was. I mean, you know, when it comes to stocks, I spoke to a guy named uh, Jack Schwager who has these great books uh, called Market Market Wizards, and he he interviews these people that have a history of beating the S and P five hundred, which you know, common. People say, "Well, you can't do that." Well, yes, people have done that. The average person can't do that. What I love, my favorite Jack Schwager line, by the way, was: "Markets are not efficient, but if you're the average person listening to this, you should think they're efficient." But <laughs> because the amount of time, and, and, and expertise, and luck it takes to beat it is 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 a handful. But but with with crypto, so if I look at what Jack's saying, Jack says there's two different types of people: there's traders and there's investors not sure investing in crypto when it's it's a speculation on this emerging economy that it promises and i'm not sure if if investing is the right word as much as the word i used earlier speculating but i guess if i'm a speculator i'm just holding it long term and i'm letting it go up and down full well knowing it could go to zero if i'm a trader then i'm playing this baloney 5 year game this this person who wrote this piece is playing that you know i could have bought it five years ago and sold it today. But is trading crypto a viable option when fundamental analysis is even hard? Excuse me, not fundamental, technical Technical analysis analysis. is hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the charts on crypto are bizarre. If you've ever tried to read a crypto chart to try to predict the next day, you can't. To some degree with stocks, there's a bunch of people that trade charts, I think trading charts with stocks is is voodoo, but the fact that so many people believe the voodoo is what makes it work. Yeah. So man, I I don't know what the strategy would be with 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 crypto. I, I I can finish off my story though. I got out. I just sold mine. I used it on a on a course to build my speaking business. I needed the I needed the 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 my twelve hundred dollars, it turned into thirteen hundred dollars. You're a winner. Probably, there you go. You're yeah, yeah. not one of the three quarters who lost. I got my use case, I got it. I understood that I'm not going to understand this and I don't like the roller coaster ride. And frankly, I don't care. So I sold it.
1: Ian, how about this idea of stable coins? I don't know if you know the theory that governments might start building their own tokens, their own crypto, but then index it to something like the dollar or something much more stable. I wonder if this idea that the the production of stable coins will eventually kill the speculative crypto market. Like once you have a coin that actually does what it's supposed to do, which is act like a currency, will people keep on speculating on crypto or could this be the end of crypto as we know it?
2: I will just comment and say to me, that sounds like you're creating a alternative form of the dollar that you are turning something that has the volatility, and you can speculate and and potentially make you know multiple x's of a return, and you're just making it very stable i guess the 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 namesake of it, so i I think it would take all of the volatility and and really all of the fun that everybody has, I think, with cryptocurrencies out of it and 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 make it boring, just like everything else
1: Joe, sum it up for us. any interest in buying crypto again, or do you think you're jaunt into ethereum will probably be it for you
0: yeah i think i'm done and i think i think ian got it uh, hundred percent right with with uh, central bank digital currencies coming and the people that had this fantasy that governments wouldn't get involved like remember that that thing that that hey i want to invest in a currency that has no government involved you think governments were going to let that happen really Have you seen what's even going on with this election? Like the dumpster fire is just going to keep getting worse. And if there's any pot of money they can get their hand into, any government will do it, not just a U.S. government. So I think central bank digital currency is coming. And I think that, you know, Ian plotted it all out. It's going to get more boring because of that. It will will definitely settle down.
1: Yeah. I mean, I tend to agree with you on that. I mean, it just seems like the use case is going to go down, especially again, since we have the ability to do things like ACHs and Venmo and Zelle, we're getting better and better at exchanging money nationally, at least. I guess if you're doing things internationally across the globe, that there's still kind of some use case for crypto. But I'm imagining that it will get a lot less interesting. Ian, ever see in the future a reason to buy crypto? Ever think you'll add it, maybe just for fun, into your portfolio?
2: I guess as we continue along this path um, of reaching that financial independence point, maybe not just crypto itself, but but I'm sure I'll start to speculate a little bit more just to maybe ride the wave of of if it's not crypto, whatever you know, hot things out there. Um, you know sure I'll I'll jump in once we have the uh, appropriate funds to do so.
1: We are speaking to Joe Salcihai, who is the creator and co-host of the Stacking Benjamins podcast, also known as Greatest Money Show on Earth. He's also the author of Stack, your super serious guide to modern money management, as well as Ian Kist, who lives with his wife and two kids in Rochester, New York. He currently is working as an athletic trainer and is well on his way to Coast Financial Independence. And this is a Current Events Thursday. We were just talking about Article 1, which is about what cryptocurrency would be worth five years later if you put a $1,000 in today, what you would have compared to investing in the S&P 500 index. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. usa.com. That's landroverusa.com. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever. And that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. Welcome back. This is a Current Events Thursday. We were just talking about an article that showed up in The Motley Fool about crypto, and we are transitioning to Article 2. We are here with Jill Salcihai of the Stag Benjamins podcast, as well as Ian Kist, who is an earn and invest community member. And Article 2 delves into Warren Buffett and investing in the S&P 500, almost the exact opposite of what we were just talking about. Article 2 comes from Benzica and is written by Aditi Ganguly, and the name of this article is Warren Buffett's Golden Advice S&P 500 Index Funds Reign Supreme for Retirement Success. He says, One of the most renowned investors of our generation, Warren Buffett, who has a net worth of over $110 billion, practices simple investing policies, claiming that the greatest investment moves are typically met with yawns. If they told everybody what a simple game investing was, 90% of the income of the people that were speaking would disappear, Buffett said during an annual shareholders meeting. Though Buffett owned several businesses that allowed him to amass such wealth, he advised beginners to consistently invest in low-cost index funds despite the market fluctuations. Consistently buy an S&P 500 low-cost index fund, Buffett said in 2017. Keep buying it through thick and thin, and especially through thin... Joe doesn't this kind of sound like do what I say and not what I do? I mean, that's not how Buffett amassed his wealth
0: well, it's funny because it kind of goes back to what I said during the first half of this discussion with this writer, Jack Schwager, talking about there are market wizards, and certainly, I think we'd all put Warren Buffett in that in that camp. He is a market wizard, and yet he knows what type of time that he spent doing that, and he knows what type of expertise he has doing that. I think what Warren Buffett says. is is that you can press the easy button and you'll get there. It truly is, in just a few paragraphs here, saying the same thing that J.L. Collins says in his wonderful book, The Simple Path to Wealth, right? It is far more simple than people think it is. We can get there without having to be Warren Buffett. I mean, how cool is that, that we don't have to do all of this stuff that Warren Buffett has done To become wealthy, we might not achieve Warren Buffett wealth, but look at what's happening to Warren. Warren Doesn't spend his money, and Warren's giving what ninety eight percent of his money to to, away when he passes away. So that that should be exciting, I think, to all of us. The beef I have with this piece, and of course I have to find one, (laughs) is that Aditi, the, the the wonderful writer here, probably didn't write the headline. And the headline is not what the article's saying. S&P 500 funds reign supreme for retirement success. I want to be clear. Warren Buffett never said that, that this was the supreme way to go. But Warren Buffett would probably say the way he went made you more money. And, and JL Collins, by the way, brilliant man, brilliant writer. Also, I think JL's a super smart guy. He didn't say the perfect path to success, right? He did. He said the simple path, and if you look at some of the work that just that Paul Merriman's done, where you go away from VTSAX and you now go to two, three, four, five. In fact, he goes. He he keeps going. You can more than double your money back testing the amount of money that you would have made in VTSAX using a fairly simple approach. Still, so. I want to back off what they say here at the top, which is it reigns supreme. It's a wonderful way to go. It's a great place to start. And then once you realize how easy this is and you take away all this fear of investing, then you can get a little more technical and that will pay you even more, which should be exciting to people. Ian, uh,
1: if you've ever talked to JL Collins about This exact principle, what Joe was just talking about, you know, he has kind of a long standing argument with Paul Merriman because Paul Merriman will say, Hey, you can take VTSAX and add two or three or four funds and really increase your returns. And then JL asks, Yeah, but how many people succeed at that? And it's like less than 50% because the more complexity you add, the less people stick with it. But Ian, you are an earn and invest community member, you think more deeply about these things. Should people like you be hitting the easy button, or maybe should you be adding two, three, four funds to maybe outsize the returns a little bit at least?
2: I think ultimately it comes back to where and how you want to spend your time. If you start on this simple path, you know it starts to light you up, you start to get excited, you start to to pursue more literature on. Where you should invest and how these, you know, funds one, two, three, it may be, can can give you an outsized return. More power to you. For myself, I like the easy button. You know, I like what is the simplest, easiest, dummy-proof way to get to where I want to, and then I can focus on the things that. I find more important to to spend some of that time on. So I, I think ultimately it really comes back to what you value and what you would like to use that time to do.
1: Ian, did you ever try the single stock picking thing? Like, was that ever part of how you did things, or have you always been an indexer?
2: So, outside of simple indexing, I do have a small uh, account with Stash, and you know I do pick. Some funds here and there, some some things that I use. You know, I I think uh, when I first started, I actually used it as a way to get in uh, very very cheaply into uh, Tesla stock, and you know, since has gone up eight hundred percent from from when I, I originally got in. So I I have taken the opportunity to do that, but I wouldn't say it's something that lights me up and up enough to to do a a a. a Outsized amount of research, or or take a a ton of time out of my normal life to, I guess, be as educated as I'd want to be when it, when throwing large large sums of money at it.
1: Joe, I once interviewed a day trader, swing trader, and you know he was saying, yeah, you can make money doing this, you can make a living. This is ends up being almost a passive way of of surviving, and I said. I asked him, I'm like, well, what percentage of people actually succeed at this or can succeed? And he's like, well, 95% are going to fail. But if you stick with it, 5%, you know, can make a living this way. So I'd ask the same thing about beating, let's say, the S&P 500 index. We know that mutual fund managers across the board generally don't, right? right? This is a common thing that they try to beat the indexes and they don't. How likely is it that someone maybe paying some attention to the stock market is going to do better than a basic total market index or an S&P 500 index?
0: Not not going to do it. You're not going to do it. Um hands down and, like not 95% not 90% you're just not going to do it. No, I mean t- you know, I've I've referenced this guy twice but Jack Schwager was was pretty adamant that that you know what, that the, these people are so much the exception to the rule. Well, like if you're going to try to trade your account, you're not going to do it. I do believe the Merriman way uh, beats the hell out of it, but that's, but that's, that's just using the efficient frontier and better asset allocation. And frankly, you know, the frustration, Ian, this isn't a frustration I have with you. This is a frustration I have with just, just us. We've made this approach seem like this big demonic. I'm going to spend all freaking day doing it. (laughs) It is like three more minutes like, oh my God, it's three more minutes. And if I just stick with it, and I would also say in this Merriman Jail, Collins argument that you were talking about, Doc, half the problem with, with the the small number of people that have made this happen, because you said 50%, hmm. it, it's the type of people that are doing it because these are people that blow themselves up because, and I've met with these people when I was an advisor, they blow up their strategy because they're always on the next diet, Right. So so it, it, there are tons of people that have blown up the VTSAX thing going oh this goes down too i can't, they said this was the simple path this goes down i'm going to do something else right i mean the the ridiculousness of that just drives me we're so smart at so many things and the fact that we make this sound like rocket science to move from the simple path when we have enough money to make it make sense to a path that is 98% as simple just just drives me crazy, drives me nuts.
1: Yeah, and, and, and Paul has been very thoughtful about this, right? Because originally he started with kind of like the factor investing and he was talking about 10 different funds, but he's really got it down to two or three funds and he's really at, talking about adding a small cap value tilt and especially if you're a young investor and he's found ways of doing it that are much easier than it appears on the
0: outset, right? It, it appears like it's this big complicated thing. I just think there's a middle ground. I think there's a great middle ground. The middle ground is forget about trying to pick the right thing. What I think JL Collins contribution for me is to the world is that people often would freak out, you know, and still do when, when, about what the right investment is. Does this investment suit me? Is this the right? Forget about any of that. The number one thing you need to do is save money. And guess what? We're going to save it into VTSAX. And all of a sudden it takes all that fear away and you know, you own a little bit of everything and you just do the thing that's most important, which is shovel money in. And then once you get to the point that those daily balances matter more, then you switch over to a more scientific approach. The only time that I have problems with, I feel like, I feel like if these two individuals would have a Camp David summit, Paul and JL, they could agree to just split the audience in two and we'd all be better off. Like we'd all be so much better off. Ian,
1: I think some of this kind of begs the question, we know what's worked in the past. And so if you listen to the financial industry today, especially if you go back a year ago, they're going to tell you every reason why equity returns are going to fall. A lot of people still say, again... The future is not what the past is going to be. There's a lot of talk about alternatives or at least moving away from the simple S&P 500 index or VTSAX. Do you see the future as a little bit more bleak or could you imagine a future where maybe all these naysayers are right and that the market is really set up for a fall over the next few years?
2: Well, I think it depends who you listen to You know, for the past year you know, you could always, you know, forecast whatever you want. And at some point, you're probably going to be right. Sure, you could, you could listen to everybody and and say, you know what, I'm going to stick the course. And, you know, everybody was right, it, it, it did drop. Or maybe you listen to that one person that says, nope, you know, uh, stop to the moon, and you follow it. And, you know, you end up where where some of those uh, ladies and gentlemen did. So, I think no matter what part of the the appeal of of social media and and being able to say things now is you can say it and there's there's no right or wrong you know you you everyone either remembers you for being a genius or they forget that you know you made this claim you know last year and 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 move on to the next thing so I don't I try and not get caught up and you know, what's going to happen next? Who says what's going to happen I, for better or for worse? Like to stick my head in the sand and hopefully come out on the other side like a lot of people have before.
1: Joe, do you think that specifically the commercial financial services industry sells fear on purpose? Like,
0: is this part of the game plan? 100%. <laughs> yeah. can, can, can we get an amen? Amen. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, especially, especially the the annuity sales. Like every time the market goes down, the annuity people are like, see, told you, told you, and so selling fear is a great way to make. I mean, not just for financial services, but for everything. Are you, are you sure, Doc? You want to go with that strategy? I think that maybe having some help with that would be would be really smart. Like, eh.
1: so Ian, part of the reason I wanted to bring up these two articles together is because they said kind of opposite things. Talk to me about the role financial news plays in your life, if any, like, do you see any value in going to a Yahoo finance or reading the Motley Fool? Like, does it, does it bring value to your life?
2: No, simply, you know, before you sent me these two articles, I would have never come across them. And, and honestly, I feel better having not seen these articles um cuz i think you know uh, part of it to to joe's point is is it does breed that fear or that uncertainty and it makes you feel like you need to do something you know it makes you feel like you need to react you know you can you can get in your own echo chamber you know listening to to the same 10 financial independence podcasts you know can can make you feel like you're you're missing out on something but when you when you listen to to the mainstream media their their headlines are are designed to uh, invoke clicks and and get you to to react and I feel much better and and just much more at ease um, not knowing about what's uh, what's being said
0: but what's funny Ian is when something important happens you still always know what it is that's what's amazing to me once I turned it off I don't know if it's the same for you but for me man when I turned all that stuff off somehow I still find out the important news.
2: Well, it's it's what everybody talks about, you know, when you when you interact with them. You know, they all ask about, hey, did you hear about this? And you can have no clue and say no. And they will they will turn around <laughs> and tell you everything that they read on Yahoo Finance and everything that you're supposed to know. So to your point, even if you try and avoid it, you end up basically getting the cliff notes of of everything that's out there anyways.
1: Joe, is there a lens because there are people who like looking at the news and, you know, you click on any news station, you're going to get some financial news. Is there a good lens we can use to kind of stay up to date, but yet not
0: go crazy with kind of all the speculation we see in these articles? Man, if they tell me, give me <laughs> that. I would love to know that. Like, that would be fantastic. Yeah, I don't know. I thought you were going to ask a different question, which is, is there a lens to see this news through? Which I definitely have an opinion there, which is uh, which is I really like the Stephen Covey three buckets approach. When I look at this stuff, because I find myself, Ian, to your point, when I've got this stuff on, I just become depressed. Like within forty-five minutes, I'm so depressed by the talking heads, and my world's gonna end any day. What I what what I like doing though with Stephen Covey, his three buckets are: Can I control this? Do I have any influence over it or is it something I can either influence nor control? And often, especially with the new cycle we're in right now as we record this, I can influence it. I can go vote. I've got a one in 330 million, you know, influence on that. And I should vote. Right. But beyond that, maybe I can post some stuff on social media if I feel really strongly get involved in my community. But when I put it in that perspective that I can only influence it I I get a little less uh, focused on that and look for stuff that I can directly control.
1: You know, every time we have this conversation, I always think about the investor policy statement, right? It comes back to some of the basics. Like if you have an investor policy statement that writes out exactly what you want out of your investments and what you believe in and how you see the market and what's supposed to happen, that way you don't have to go running and changing things when the news changes. And if you really, you know, want to get detailed in your investor policy statement, you can have some if then statements that even specify how you want to act in these stressful situations. Ian, do you have an investor policy statement? I have to admit, I don't. I've always kept it in my head, which is probably one of the worst things I do as a personal finance podcaster. I should actually write one out. But do you have one actually written out,
2: Ian? Do not.
1: Joe, honestly, you have one written out? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I know he does. <laughs> I, yeah. I had no question about that.
2: Yeah, so Joe, is, is there a is there a reason that you feel so strongly about having it written as opposed to the doc G method of having it just up in your head?
0: Because the things that happen in my head then mean the the emotions change the way I view what was written in my head. So I'm like, well, if if my investment policy statement says I am always going to rebalance when we have a drift of 5% and I'm at 5%, but I really like that fund I'm in, I go (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 5%-ish. If it's in writing, it feels more formal and I'm much more likely to do two things. I'm much more likely to follow it, number one and not second-guess it. But then also number two is if I do second-guess it, I'm more likely to then tweak the machine. And then I start thinking longer term. Is this something that's just this particular market cycle, or is this something that's going to suit me 10 years from now? Am I fixing it to band-aid this one little problem, or am I truly making the machine work better? And if it's this one thing, why am I going to make an exception this time? Because the recency bias that we all have, right? Leads to, it's always different this time. (laughs) And if, and if I play in that game, then I'm in big trouble.
2: How often do you recommend updating it or at least reviewing it?
0: I review it every time that I make changes, which is twice a year. Now, twice a year, a lot of financial advisors will tell you is overkill. You actually need to make a change once a year. And studies show that that second time that I do, not necessarily worth even the hour that I spend looking at it, but I do it twice a year.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that's a great way to end this conversation is, you know, if you're going to react to news, then that should be news that you could have foreseen in your investor policy statement and said, from the beginning, if these type of changes happen, I want to make these type of portfolio changes. And if you can't forecast that in the future and some news comes out and you hadn't thought about it or hadn't planned for it then probably your investor policy statement should stand. And I think that can help us certainly wade through news like this, which kind of flies in the face of each other and doesn't necessarily improve our understanding, nor probably our performance. First and foremost, Ian Kiss, community member, thank you so much for being on the show today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: And Joe Salcihai, if people want to know more about you, the
0: Stacking Benjamins podcast or your book, Stacked, what's the easiest way to learn more? Head to stackybenjamins.com or listen to the show every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, which often includes our friend Doc G, who's on a podcast with us tomorrow. So if you're enjoying Doc today, hear him again with us tomorrow. Ian
1: Kist and Joe Salcihai, thank you for being on Earn and Invest. That's a wrap. Earn and invest is now part of the airwave media podcast network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. So I wanted to thank Ian Kist for coming on for our first current events Thursday, where a community member joins me and an expert like Joe High, And we talk about some current articles and current events. This is something we're going to be doing on the last Thursday of every month. I already have people signed up for the next five or six months, but if you would like to be part of this kind of episode to banter back and forth with Joe and I or whichever expert I have on, please write me and let me know and I will put you on the list of people. There is no stress by signing up for the show. You are not expected to know anything more than the average community member knows about personal finance or life. The idea is to get everyone's opinion, not just the so-called content creators or people who study personal finance for a living. This also reminds me of this idea of community feedback. You know, I get emails from time to time about the podcast or about the episodes, and it's a good chance for me to reflect on who I've chosen to have as guests and what topics I choose to talk about. I want to read a specific email that I received after the episode about whether fire has become elitist. If you guys remember, I had Diana Miriam and Leif Dahlien on. We were talking about how Diana had received a number of emails about her economy conference and how a number of people were kind of turned off by the cost of the conference. And so we decided to talk about whether Fire has lost its roots, and it's become more elitist and maybe even more quote-unquote valuist than what it used to be about, which was frugality and saving and wise investing. I got this email from a community member, Brendan, and I'm going to read it for you. He says, Some feedback on the fire and elitist question episode. I think the discussion would have been much more valuable had it not been an echo chamber of content creators defending what they charge, but perhaps a healthy debate between one or two content creators and actual listeners who are just starting out or are trying to subscribe to the 60% savings rate to achieve the dream someday that the public voices in the movement reached long ago. Ultimately, a discussion where everyone agrees and sees it through the same lens just doesn't move the needle for me. Good idea and fresh topic, which was nice to see discussed. I would have liked to have seen the author of the second email invited to join the discussion, however. All right, so let's talk about this feedback. The second email he's discussing about is an email that Diana got. Again, someone who was upset at the cost of the conference and feeling that fire was, had become at least a little bit elitist. First and foremost, Brendan, thank you for the feedback. I think a lot about this, and I've really struggled with this idea of should my episodes, my panels, or even my stance with my guests be confrontational or not? Is this an argument, a heated discussion, or am I presenting a viewpoint with the podcast? And I've definitely fallen on the side of I'm presenting a viewpoint, a viewpoint that might be counter to other people's. But generally, I've decided to stay away from the debate or having confrontational guests. I know that you can have definitely deep conversations when you have two guests that don't agree with each other and you have them hash it out on air. But that was never really my intention with the podcast. My intention has always been to take an idea, maybe unpopular, maybe different, maybe something you've never heard of, and hash it out further so you could hear the detail of that side of the story. And then you could take that yourself and decide whether you agree with it or not. Now, certainly as the host, I try to gently push back. But really, when I do try to push back, it's not to argue. It's more to elucidate someone's arguments. What I'm really trying to do is present clearly a viewpoint so that you as the people listening can evaluate that viewpoint and decide whether you agree with it or not. Because of that, I generally have not brought on dissenting views in order to confront each other. And I don't think at this point I will. However, Brendan, I definitely agree. It can make for much more entertaining and in some ways a deeper conversation I think there are other places to do that, and I guess it's just never been my goal for Earn and Invest to be that kind of place. Now, the second point you made, which was interesting, which was having the writer of that email come on and be on the show, I will tell you, You know, I kind of struggle with this. What I found is people who are not content creators, A, don't like being on podcasts. They don't like the attention. So often when I offer the opportunity out there, just like with these Thursday episodes, I don't necessarily get a huge number of people who are interested. But the other thing is content creators tend to think deeply about their topic. They write about it. They podcast about it. So they've really elucidated their ideas Often when I take someone from the audience, sometimes they haven't. So you put them behind the microphone and you just get fairly incoherent viewpoints that aren't verbalized really well. That doesn't mean that I don't ever want to have community guests on. In fact, I like having community guests on, but it's often hard to find people who want to be on the show that can then clearly state their opinions and why they think the way they think about something. In fact, I normally wouldn't either about lots of topics, even though I have strong opinions. The only reason that when it comes to personal finance, I kind of understand or can elucidate those feelings is because I spend all day doing it, whether it be writing or podcasting or what have you. Uh, that doesn't mean we won't do some more of this in the future. And I totally, totally appreciate the feedback. I am listening. I'm considering whether I go that direction or not. I'm not sure but I 100% thank you for giving that feedback. And it is a real criticism of the show, which I don't necessarily disagree with. All right. Sorry about that. I was a little clunky because it's a new format for me. Anything we didn't talk about or anything to add?
2: Um... You know, the, the only thing that I was thinking about was, um, you know, as, as it relates to the second article, you know, and, and you talk about the simple path, I, th- I think there's always a, a, a way to make more money, you know, a, or, or a faster way. You know, you think of all the people that, um, you know, within this community even um, tout real estate as a way to, you know, kind of turbocharge your, your path. You know, I think there's, there's always a way to do it uh, faster. You know, and and maybe even be, um, you know, fairly risk averse and, and, and still still do it faster. But, you know, I think ultimately to me, it's it's really what's the easiest. So,
1: yeah, Joe, why don't we ever talk about the making money side? We always well, I shouldn't say making money side. We We don't talk about the active making money side. Right. So we talk about making money through passive means like the stock market. But if you're really after huge gains, right, put your money in the index and then work a little harder or create something or start a business or or do something different where you're actually making money as opposed to passively letting it grow.
0: Which is funny because when you look at the list of the, you know, if we talked to Ian's point about, about getting there faster, like, like take a look at the the twenty richest people in the world, and how many of those people got most of their wealth from investing versus from building a company. Like truly, if you want to get there faster, go build a company. Um, that's also a way to completely wreck it, too. By the way, you, you just basically take the standard deviation and lower it. You know, uh, it's either going to go really well, or or you're you're done.
1: Yeah, but definitely. But on the micro level, um, my ability, for instance, to reach... So if, if I'm looking for that vaunted thing of financial independence, um, I'm not going to get there by investing better, most likely, especially if I have the baseline of VTSAX or SMP500 being kind of my, my guideline. It's I'm more likely going to get there by making a little extra money.
2: Do you think there's a reason people don't you know talk about once you reach... Uh a certain level of, of wealth that you, you don't start to, to kind of look for ways to accelerate it? Do you think there's a reason that there's, there's not more of an emphasis on that? Hey, get to this certain level and then try X, Y, Z to get there faster.
1: You mean like business wise, like build a business? Right. That type you of know,
2: thing? build a business or 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 go into real estate or or you know, hey, once you get to this amount, you know, start to look into X, Y, and Z fund. You know, do you think there's a reason they uh experts don't say get to X point and then start to pursue some of those things? Or do you think there is a point that that is is safe to then start doing some of that?
1: I think we live between two major cultures here. I think we have the Uh, hustle culture, like the hustle porn culture, which tells you all you should do is that. And then I think we have a little more of the financial independence, retire early culture, which is just put your money in the stock market and let it grow. Um, And I think reality probably falls somewhere in
0: between where you do a little bit of both. I was happy to see Nick Majuli uh, actually address like the kind of that tipping point though. Like, you know, shovel money in and do the hustle culture until the ups and downs of your money goes up and down so much that, that it overtakes you shoveling money in. Once you get to the point that, that, that the amount per paycheck that your money goes up or down, um, is bigger than the amount you're shoveling in, then it's time to get Dennis, more analytical yeah. about your asset allocation. The thing that frustrates me about real estate, because Ian, we have a real estate show too, is that you know the North American real estate index and the S and P five hundred end up almost exactly at the same place. So whenever I hear people, in fact, we got a pitch for our show uh, today saying this about how you know, for, for, forget your stockbroker, invest in real estate because you'll make money way faster. I'm like, no, you won't like historically you haven't historically it's more of a pain in the ass it's more direct don't get me wrong just like buying an individual stock can take you on a higher high buying an individual property will be a real estate index um and the use of leverage helps but leverage it was funny Uh, josh dorkin who created bigger pockets said this and i totally agree He's like, what's funny is, is that during good times, people tout real estate because you use leverage more often. Like when we talk about using a mortgage, everybody's like, well, everybody does it. We talk about using the stock market and taking a margin loan, which is the (laughs) same shit. Everybody's like, are you crazy? Why would I take a margin loan? Really? You take a loan against your house to buy it. So why would you take a loan against your stock to buy it? But, um, but uh, I, I mean, and, and, and they are a little bit different, but the, uh, Uh, but the use of leverage, which is so prevalent in real estate is why I think Josh's quote was, it creates bigger winners and there's a bigger giant flushing sound to losers when 2007, 2008 happens because all the over leveraged people get smoked. Do you buy Joe this? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Ian.
2: No, I just, uh. I guess sometimes you know you talk about having FOMO and you know I listen to Chad Carson and you know talking about you know small small investing and um you know I listen to to Bigger Pockets and and a lot of um what they talk about when it comes to real estate and 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 full transparency we actually tried our our hand at real estate and I hated it and oh, uh, we oh, and we too. actually we of. actually we actually just sold a house um this past year and. I've never felt more at ease. Um, Me too. You know, and, and, uh, you know, part of it is, is, is we did, uh, make a nice return on it, but, um, you know, and, and maybe made us, um, you know, a little bit farther along in this path. And, and maybe that's why it makes me feel better, but it's just one less thing to worry about. So, you know, you get the FOMO of, of wanting to, to do that. And then you start to do it and you go, you know what? I don't really like this.
1: Joe, do you buy this idea that, real estate is more inefficient as a market than than equities are. And therefore your upside risk is better. Like a lot of people say, well, there are a lot more fire sales in real estate, right? You get people who are just squeezed and you can go in and assess the value and, and realize you're getting a better deal.
0: Well, there's a, as an example, if, if, if grandma passes away and the heirs don't know what to do with her stock portfolio, I can't go knock on her door and buy her stocks <laughs> for, for 60 cents on the dollar because the family doesn't have an idea what's going on. Right. Yeah. So there's clearly inefficiencies in real estate where I can score those deals that you don't get with the stock market. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's the bet to me.
1: So there, there's also the tax issue, right? So there's some, some tax benefits. But to me, that's that's the biggest, I guess there's some forced appreciation too, but to me, yeah. that's the biggest argument for, like, if you're savvy and really pay attention, I think your likelihood of picking a good, picking a good rental home versus picking a good stock, I think your chances yeah. are higher of picking a good rental home.
0: I totally agree. I think, you know, I kept mentioning this guy, Jack, because uh, I've got a ton of respect for him, but Jack talks about how, you know, don't be a trader. He's like, he interviews traders and talks about this fascinating stuff with traders, but he's like, you shouldn't do that. I think with real estate investor, you're right on. If you know, if you know, it is, it is easier to beat that index as a, uh, as a,
1: especially if you're looking for income versus equity, right? So if you're looking for an income property, as opposed to you're taking a speculation on whether the value is going to go up in a short period of time, then
2: yeah.
0: I actually so, even think there you can do it though. I mean, yeah. I think some of these top flippers, my problem with flipping is it's just another full time job. Yeah. I mean, and
2: that's what I was going to say was ultimately, you know, how passive is real estate? I mean, yeah, sure. Once once you get it to a certain point, I guess, you know, you can get it down to, to five, 10 hours, you know, but how, yeah, that's, how passive is it? But it's a business, the, but any
1: business, that's, you that's can the get joke. Down to
0: that. yeah. yeah, that's the jokey. And is that the passive investment always cracks me up. But not a bad way to go, especially if you don't start with much, but.
2: Yeah. Well, it it can definitely supercharge it.
0: No, I think the real estate thing is much more about know yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think real estate, obviously, we wouldn't have a podcast about real estate if I didn't think that that was great for a lot of people. And I get it, the people it's great for. And I get excited talking about it. But in so talking about it, I love like doing a podcast on it. I think it's super fun. Talking to Chad Carson always cracks me up. (laughs) And I end every interview going, that's awesome and not for me. (laughs) And I don't want to do it.